1: There's no upsell, no guru pitch, and no fluff. It's time to unshackle yourself from captivity and make your freedom jump with the Agency Freedom Podcast. Let's go. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Agency Freedom Podcast, where we help insurance professionals move from captivity to freedom. And I'm going to approach this episode a little bit differently uh, because I have the distinct honor and privilege of talking with the man himself, Mr. Frank Sentner, And you young bucks out there may not have any idea who he is, but I guarantee you feel the impact of his work uh, and what he's done with his time the last, I don't know how many years, a lot of years in our industry. Some call him the, the godfather of the modern property and casualty insurance industry. His work is, is felt by literally millions of people. Uh, Frank, thank you so much for spending some of your valuable time with us today. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, James. I'm happy to be here.
1: I I don't know where to go in this conversation other than just to start indulging my own curiosity. I, I have to confess, your resume is so long and your accomplishments are so numerous, I don't even really know where to begin. So I will let you decide where we begin as far as telling the Frank Sentner story for those of us. And the listening audience that are not familiar with what you've been up to the last four or five decades, making gigantic impacts on the industry. I, I just in case you're wondering, folks, I did apologize for being a bit of a fanboy before we started uh, recording. Um, so Frank has already uh, shared some of his sentiments there. I may ask him a little bit more of his his feelings on his position as a an, a literal icon in our industry, but. For now, Frank, why don't you uh, give us the, the career story, you take it in any direction you want to, and how you got to you know modern day times, and we'll go from there.
2: <laughs> I know that's a
1: very loaded question for a man uh, such as yourself.
2: How we got to modern day times. I'm getting older by the second. <laughs>
1: oh my God. I should probably apologize for that particular <laughs> no, thing.
2: Not at all. Not at all. Thank you for the kind words. And it's 47 years and counting. And I I usually find it best to begin at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it may be humorous for folks out there today to understand where the industry's come during my lifetime. And it's been an astonishing change. When I first started out, I was selling insurance systems to insurance agents. And um, I'm not a good salesman. I, I knew nothing about insurance or technology for that matter. Uh, but my best friend was the sales manager, and I needed a job. So that's how I got started. And fortunately, I'm a quick study. The system that we were selling was on what we called at the time a mini computer. That was the size of a refrigerator freezer, and it had 16K of memory. That's K.
1: As in um, kilobytes.
2: We, we don't We don't even <laughs> measure that anymore. Oh, my um, word. And it had 10 megabytes of disk. So to give you an idea, my iPhone dwarfs that by several orders of magnitude. And all it did was accounting. And I I learned quickly how to go about selling that platform, rapidly discovered that sales wasn't the right place for me. And the company agreed and moved me into consulting. And by a happy accident, I got put in charge of a group of developers who were creating the first policy and claims system for that platform. That platform, by the way, was called Insurnet, and it was a time-shared system over dedicated phone lines, if you can believe that. The system that we created for policy and claims was based on Accord forms. It was my first introduction to Accord, and Accord had been around since the late 60s. At this point in time, they had dozens and dozens of lines of business in form format, We simply took those forms, deconstructed them into green screens. People would put pre-printed paper into the forms, into an impact printer. After having typed the information into the computer, it would print the accord form. And everyone was amazed. And that is really one of the dumbest uses of a computer that I can imagine. But it was revolutionary for the time. So
1: they took pre-printed paper, Uh took a digital electronic device and fed it through, and then it came out again on the other side as printed paper with more information on a piece of paper.
2: It was basically a typewriter.
1: (laughs) I was about to say, it sounds like a glorified typewriter.
2: And it was indeed. Wow. However, it aggregated the data, and you were able to run reports on it later, which is not something you can do with a typewriter. So it had its appeal. It Mm. was rapidly displaced. Actually, the last of those systems lasted till the year 2000, but they never bothered making it work past there. Mm. I left that company and went out on my own thinking I was smart enough to create my own management system. And at the same time, it was around mid 80s, 82. And Accord came out with the first data standard for download of policy information called AL3, the Accord Level 3 data standard. And I built our system. I I formed a company with a technical guy who was absolutely brilliant, but knew nothing about insurance, and a terrific commercial insurance agent from Long Island. And he knew nothing about technology. But I was the guy in the middle. I knew both. Mm. And together, we built a system that's today known as Sagita. It runs still, after 37 years, runs some of the largest Insurance agents in the US and uh, therefore in the world. Yeah. Much MMA, BBT, USI, Holmes Murphy, they all use the Sajita product to this day. And I'm telling you, the underlying data structure has not changed. We then went through a process of merger and acquisition. Ultimately, the system wound up being owned by the company that's known today as Vertifor. And I spent my 15 months in hell as their chief technology officer and left and went out on my own. This was in 96. And I've been on my own ever since, consulting mostly with large insurance brokers and some large insurance companies. But lately, I pivoted my consulting practice the last 10 years to working with startups. And I changed my Fee structure from fee-for-service to equity-for-service. And today I'm on the board of advisory board for nine insurtech startups. So that's Mm -hmm. me, 47 years in a nutshell.
1: Well, I hope you're not retiring in the next three years because we need to throw you a big, huge 50-year celebration (laughs) and just invite everybody and and make a big, huge bash out of it.
2: That would be exciting. I, I will be 75 years of age then,
1: so... I got to say, I I regret not having video on just because the folks should be able to appreciate that epic beard you've got going on. So I did snap a picture or two. You might see it on LinkedIn later, Um, but I'm not even kidding, really. I don't know who would be in charge of such an affair if we were to throw Frank Sentner a 50 years in the industry celebration, but I promise you, I'm buying a plane ticket if there is one. So well,
2: I would love that. And I've made a lot of terrific friends. I have been extremely lucky throughout my life. Uh, at the time, I thought I was uh, smart, you know, but looking back, I can see how many ways it could have gone wrong. And that's one of the joys that I have today, where I do a lot of mentoring of students, both graduate and undergraduate students here in and around Hartford as part of the UConn, the Connecticut Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Mm -hmm. I work with a number of the InsurTech accelerators as a mentor, all pro bono. And most of the startups that I now have an equity stake in, all sweat equity, I have met through those adventures, those mentoring engagements. And it is just a joy. I find entrepreneurs to be such a stimulating group of people to be around. They Mm. are 100% energy, they've put it all on the line, and anything I can do to help by giving them insight into our industry, and some of the mistakes I've made myself along the way, how to avoid those pitfalls, is really something that gives me great, great pleasure.
1: No, I can imagine. You know, at a certain point uh, in someone's career, they start to be more concerned with impact and legacy and giving back to their practice, whatever that happens to be. So mm-hmm. I'm not at all surprised that at a certain point, it sounds like about 25 or 30 years ago, you started being more mindful of sharing your significant experiences and wisdom uh, with, with other people that came behind you in the insure tech world. What do they call it back back uh, in your day when when you were doing all of these things back in the 80s? Because the word "insurtech" obviously didn't exist until sometime around a decade ago, give or take.
2: Yeah, it was just insurance technology. All okay. we've done is abbreviate it and put the two words together. So,
1: just out of curiosity, do you know Peter and Joe at Wonderite?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I was I was actually one of the gigs that I had that got me started on the insurance technology mentoring and advising was the Accord. InsurTech Innovation Challenge. Mm. I worked with a couple of consultants to put that idea together for Accord because they were interested in learning more about the emerging technologies that could use data standards. And certainly they were very interested in giving the new InsurTechs an opportunity to understand that there was this enormous cache of intellectual property that Accord has that didn't need to be reinvented. You know, many people build their systems and then discover after the fact that there are these data standards that they need to adhere to in order to be able to exchange data with people throughout the industry. Much better to build it from the ground up. Mm. And one of the very early, I don't know if it was the first year, but definitely not more than the third year that we did it, that Peter came and pitched at the InsurTech Innovation Challenge, uh, CORD InsurTech Innovation Challenge, and I remember at the time thinking this young man wants to boil the ocean. He had so many ideas, and he had crammed all those ideas into his initial pitch and it was just overwhelming. The judges were unanimous in applauding his enthusiasm and you know also in questioning his sanity mm-hmm. so he he we gave him feedback at the at the end, and he was one of the most receptive candidates I've ever talked to he just took notes he he absolutely took in every bit of con, uh, criticism and promotion that we could give him and he came and pitched two more times each time getting better and he just never gave up uh, went back to school met a whole bunch of young people he was by far the oldest in his group uh, as already having been a commercial insurance producer for his dad's agency I think on the Cape and yep. He put, surrounded himself with these young people who were interested in doing a startup and they launched WonderWrite and he's a successful application today because he has probably the most important characteristic for an entrepreneur. He was persistent. He never gave up and I know he's going to be a success because he just won't accept any other outcome.
1: Yep. Now, I, uh. I've called Peter a friend for a couple of years now, and uh, he's a previous guest on the podcast, and uh, we got to do some deep sea fishing in Key West, thanks to David Carruthers and uh, oh. that that tribe over there. I, I know you've crossed paths with David. He's, oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a big fan of yours.
2: I really enjoy working with him.
1: So I I am sitting here as you're talking, thinking, I have an audience with Frank Centner. What in the world am I going to ask this guy? Because I have the responsibility, the burden, if you will, of deciding which direction to take this conversation. I'd like to get your perspective on you know, what was versus what is, because I think for a lot of folks, myself included, we might have a, a bit of recency bias where we think that the challenges that the industry is facing today, the hard market cycle, the you know, mm-hmm. climate change driving more severe weather events happening more frequently, technology issues, Picking the right technology. One of the things that somebody said on LinkedIn a few days ago, and, and this is kind of the segue into getting your take on things. They said, you know, a decade ago when I started in the industry, InsureTech wasn't really a thing. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of these vendors, these vendor categories even, didn't exist. Right. And it's almost like we're almost back to square one because now so many vendors exist. So many different categories that were kind of hard to really nail down exactly what are you? You know, somebody um, last year said, we're a a customer, a client enablement platform. And I'm like, what the, that that is the most bizarre thing to say, what does that even mean? It's like, the person on LinkedIn said, it feels like it is even harder now because we have so many choices to pick from as far as vendor partners. It's almost harder than it was before any of them existed, and we were just individually cobbling together solutions on an agency-by-agency basis. What's your take on where we are now you know, versus you know, maybe a decade or so ago when InsurTech really started to become a thing, and then when you were in the thick, you know, the prime years of your career, when you were moving and shaking and doing everything, when technology was still the Wild West and there were no rules?
2: Well, I mean, there, there actually were rules. And I mentioned that sajita was built using the Accord Level 3 electronic data standards. Mm-hmm. And that data standard wasn't intended for the purpose to which I put it to use. It was intended as a way to communicate from insurance carriers to insurance agencies. Agencies were fed up with having to fill out many, many different kinds of forms for every insurance carrier. So Accord helped them Put that into a structure so they could do one application and get it to most of their markets. Mm -hmm. Agents were then saying, "Okay, if I'm going to put all this data into a computer system to then generate forms which go to the carrier when the policy is issued, I don't want to have to go back in and change the data. You have the data. Send it to me. Update my system. Right. Why should I do double entry? I'm not being paid any more commission to do that. And so that's why they created those data standards. The change that I see having happened is that there is so much more technology today, and much of it are point solutions, where we used to build monolithic systems that did everything that an insurance agency wanted. We're now getting more and more fragmented in terms of the technology solutions. Now, that's not a bad thing if there are easy ways to reliably share data between all those systems. Right? So we've always been a data industry, okay? The only products we buy are data. We buy MVR reports. We buy credit reports. We buy whatever additional ancillary data we can about our customers to better understand them and to get a better sense of the risk so that we can find the right coverage solutions. The only thing we manufacture is data. We take that data we've bought or uh, kept and we use it to articulate a solution for the insurance risk that we're presented with. And yet we take so little care of that data. Independent agents are in the middle. You know, they're between the customer and the insurance carrier. Think of insurance carriers as manufacturing. We're distribution. Agents and brokers are distribution. Because we get our data from so many different sources, from rating systems and lead systems and carrier systems, you know, Agency management systems were built in many cases to be able to accept all kinds of data pretty uncritically. That makes reusing that data extremely difficult because the data we get from one carrier cannot, would not necessarily match the data we get from another. That we get from one rating system won't match what we get from another. What we get from our own people going in and entering won't necessarily match any of those. And so when you try to share that data, whether it's sharing it in a mobile app, so that your customer can see on their phone, the thing that's with them every day, what they've got by way of coverage, you know, and, and interact with their, their uh, agency partner in a digital fashion, which is what digital engagement is about. Or they want to share it to, I don't know, a, uh, a certificate issuance system for proofs of insurance. Or they want to share it to a a pricing system, a quoting system, or you name it, even back to an insurance carrier. If you don't have data standards and you don't enforce those data standards, then every person, every entity along the line that you share your data with has to go through a data cleansing process that is extremely difficult. And believe me, I spend most of the time I spent with my startups now is trying to resolve this problem. And it is a problem That is exacerbated by the fact that the larger vendors in this space, the agency management system vendors with the most uh, biggest footprint among agents, are really unfriendly to third parties who want to get access to the agent's data. They make it costly and difficult, if only by not having good enough technology to share that data intelligently. And a lot of it, I believe, is much more in the area of restraint of trade than incompetence. And so when you talk about agency freedom, agents are never going to be free until they have control of their own data. The argument often rotates or revolves around, you know, who owns the data? I couldn't care less who owns the data. That's how many angels dance on the head of a pin. I care what is my access capability and what is my access cost? Those are the two things which dictate agency freedom because you should be capable of determining who you want to do business with. You shouldn't have your vendor determining based on an orange partner program that you can integrate with this vendor and not this vendor. It's not their data. And until and unless agents take control of that, and that starts with your contract. Read the contract. In the contract, you give them the rights to monetize your data. That's not just monetizing it for other people. It's monetizing it for you. It's like somebody taking your watch and charging you to tell you what time it is. And that's where we find ourselves today. And agents are locked into these by long-term contracts that are really illegal, in my opinion, and by the costs of having to change system. It's so onerous. Agents need to take control of the only thing that they really produce, which is data. I could not agree
1: more with what you just said. And the way that you so eloquently put those pieces together, uh, I haven't quite heard it in that way before. So outstanding there. To go back to part of what you just said, I'm imagining this AL3 file type, which we still use, by the way, across the entire industry. But I see that with regards to IVANs and downloads. Yep. You want to talk about what in, in my opinion, and I know that this is gonna ruffle some feathers and probably stops me from getting any sort of invite to an applied conference anytime soon. <laughs> but Ivans to me, I it just feels like antitrust to me. Yeah, and I know I know that's a really heavy word, but when one company applied owns Ivans and Ivans is the conduit that virtually all policy data flows through with the, the downloads process. It just seems like way too much power concentrated with within one company, any company. And I'm not saying applied is evil or they're mm-hmm. some kind of a, a bad thing. Not at all. I just, as a red-blooded American and a capitalist mm-hmm. and a free market capitalist, I don't want any company to have that much power. I uh, ha- Historically, I imagine you have a very unique perspective on the whole Ivan's thing, the the emergence of policy downloads from carriers into management systems, into retail agencies. How did that process come about? What was that like to take these AL3 files and push them through some sort of download network that later became IVAN's?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting evolution. Both Accord and IVAN's were children of the Insurance Institute for Research. And I was around and in the industry when Ivins and Accord were part of one organization and the industry has a pretty bad track record of standing up businesses, you know, to solve problems for the industry as a whole and then funding them, giving them all manner of, of insight into our industry's needs and then allowing them to get off the reservation, become private entities and ultimately wind up charging us for the very you know, information that we originally empowered them to collect. That's what happened with Ivans. Accord remains a not for profit organization. They do have the Accord Solutions Group now, but that's separate. But Ivans was allowed to be taken out as a private company, then go public, then get themselves sold back to an agency management system vendor who's only one of many who needed access to those services. Now, Ivins has honored all of their agreements that they have with agency management system vendors and with insurance carriers, of course, and they do a very credible job. They do a lot more than people give them credit for. But I know because I'm behind the scenes with a lot of startups that not a single new agency management system vendor has gotten a contract with Ivins without threatening to sue because they just drag their feet. They don't say No. They say how much, and then the contract never comes. It never comes until you send them a letter, either saying you're going to refer to your lawyer or saying that you're going that your lawyer sends the letter and saying that they're going to sue. So is it in restraint of trade? Absolutely. Uh, and there are people who've waited months and months and months before doing that, uh, resorting to the threat of going uh, the legal route. And they'll never go the legal, legal route because there's no way they could win that. They would never win in a court of law. It's very clearly uh, antitrust situation and in restraint of trade. but it was allowed to happen because our industry is terribly opaque to everyone on the outside, including the government
1: now, yeah. and the fact that it all happens at the state level and you have you know fifty different insurance commissioners, almost yeah. none of whom actually talk to each other outside of some limited NAIC type of interactions, there is virtually nothing that happens in the insurance world at the federal level. So any kind of antitrust conversation is very difficult to even consider, isn't it? It is.
2: I have had the conversation with numerous trade associations for insurance agents because they could take action if they wanted to. But so far, I haven't had any who were willing to take that step. It certainly would alienate uh, some fairly large advertisers for their magazines, Um, although I can't believe that that could be the only reason that they're not pursuing it. It is a difficult situation, and state regulation does complicate things. I will say that over the years, I've seen NAIC become more responsive to the realities of the changing world, but they're still an awful lot more concerned about the wording and even the font size you know, of forms than they are about the content of the data that goes on those forms. And until we can get our uh, regulators to refocus themselves on the data content and less on the wording and font sizes on, on forms for disclaimers and the like, we're not going to be able to really automate things. The the mm-hmm. fact that we still verify in a digital age, uh, and keep in mind, to my perspective from my perspective we're going on 50 years of being in the digital age okay now admittedly perhaps that time we really weren't you know able to do anything uh, significant in terms of giving universal access to information but we're there today but in a digital age we where we're still even in state law mandating the use of an accord form to validate coverage is unconscionable the the thought that one could, accurately and reliably report coverage details uh, from these multiple, infinitely variable legal contracts we call policies on a single sheet of paper is ludicrous. And yet that's what we persist in doing. And there's no reason for it.
1: Hey, Freedom Jumper, are you looking to take your business to the next level? Who is it, right? Write more business and see your agency succeed with NBS. a Nationwide Brokerage Solutions, they understand the challenges local agents face in the constantly changing marketplace. That's why they offer a wide array of personal and commercial markets and policy options to help you meet the needs of your customers, no matter how unique or outlandish they may be. With a team of experienced and dedicated professionals that provide you with the support and guidance you need to see your agency succeed, Nationwide Brokerage Solutions is here to support you every step of the way. Don't just survive in the competitive insurance industry. Thrive with Nationwide Brokerage Solutions. Get started today. Learn more at nbsbrokerage.com. The complexity of the product, the insurance policy contract, has, I I would have to think, dramatically increased in the last few decades. Uh, I don't have my hands on a, you know, a fire policy contract from 35 years ago. I never actually uh, thought to look at those. But I would imagine the language used, some of the definitions, the way that those policies are constructed have gotten a lot more complicated over the years.
2: They have. And, you know, people talk about insurance like it's some boring thing. I tell you, the insurance industry is constantly innovating within their space, okay? Mm -hmm. They're constantly adding additional types of coverage, additional endorsements, additional lines of business, you know? And it is not going to stop. I mean, it's only going to get more complex because the world is getting more complex. And insurance is one of those things that touches every aspect of our personal and professional lives. Most people don't think about that. It is undeniably a social good. Most businesses wouldn't be able to survive, wouldn't even attempt to be started. Most people wouldn't be, feel safe leaving their home or, or driving their car without insurance. And yet we do a terrible job of expressing the the, the products of insurance as social goods. And um, And we, re- we really need to do a better job of that. You know, part of it is that in many jurisdictions, uh certain types of coverage are mandated by law and people just are at least Americans are uh, inherently opposed to the idea of of government, you know, mandates. Uh but the reality is that that it makes us safer, it makes our business world more predictable, more reliable and it keeps okay. people, you know, in business who want to remain in business. And we, you know, it's <laughs> the risks are are real, the opportunity for protection is real, and it's something that we need to be telling people about, that we're here to do good.
1: I absolutely agree. Uh, And and I think as an industry, we have allowed the the sales and marketing people to have more sway uh, than they probably should have, because it too often becomes nothing but a zero-sum game of who's going to save me more money. And The average american doesn't understand even a little bit of their insurance policy on something as simple as personal auto or home much less we get into the commercial side of things where it gets you know infinitely more complex where the risk exposures have so many different variables and vectors than they ever do on the personal side of insurance so uh, the the knowledge gap is unfortunately I, i see it getting bigger not smaller because the people that are in charge of selling the policy seem to only want to talk about price when I see a commercial or an advertisement of really any kind because the folks like, uh, you know, Marsh, I don't really see anything from Marsh. They don't really advertise. They don't need to. If they do, it's something as simple as a a little one-page or an insurance journal and it says, we're the best. That's all it (laughs) says. You know, something generic and benign like that. They're not getting into any value ads or hey, here's why this matters, this is a social good. My personal opinion is that insurance, and you said a version of this yourself, is the foundation of a civilized modern society because mm-hmm. without risk and insurance products, nobody would ever do anything. There would be no innovation because people would be terrified of financial ruin being one mistake away yeah, or one bad accident away
2: yeah i mean i i recent well recently a couple of years ago i i got involved with goodwin college across the river and putting together a uh, training for people who are going to work in the insurance industry and i literally took them back to lloyd's the not the current lloyd's lloyd's the coffee house and the shipping example and the reason why this grew organically out of the needs of business people you know the the challenge that we have going forward is to take advantage of the newer technologies to do a better job of what we do right now. And one of my startups is uh, an AI, it's Aureus Analytics, it's an AI-powered mm-hmm. customer experience engine. And I was just in in a meeting today working with some of the folks, uh, they happen to be in India, and I uh, their developers were. And I was interpreting for them some of the coverage details that uh, one of their customers wants them to analyze because they want to do a better job as professional insurance agents of recommending the proper coverages. And so, you know, the management of the organization says, don't sell assist, uh, uh, any any insurance policies or personal auto policies with less than a thousand dollar deductible on, on, you know, physical damage. Okay. I just don't want my people to be insured for less than that, you know, and, and, I mean, I want them to have the, the opportunity to get a, a less expensive policy. And most people today can for, afford the $1,000 deductible. And I, I want every single homeowner to go out with the water and sewer, you know, uh, endorsement. And I want, you know, these minimum levels of liability coverage and so forth. And they're having to go in and interpret the, the agent's colloquial description of what they want as actual programs for their machine learning algorithms, right? And they're contending with the fact that the data coming in from multiple insurance companies and entered by the people in the agency has has got many variations of those variables that they're trying to interpret. But yep. the long term, this is this, this system is only going to get better at learning about what these coverages mean. Okay. And that knowledge is no longer instantiated in an underwriter's head or in a really good customer service rep's head in the agency. It's now in a program that's only going to get better and learn more year after year after year. And it, it doesn't take a vacation. It doesn't take a sick day. You know, it's working 24-7. And when you ask it a question, it will begin to give you that insight that human beings can't provide black in a blanket way across all of their coverages, right? Because there's so much negotiation that goes on between the request for placement of coverage and the actual issuance that they don't necessarily always know how the policy was written. They may have requested a coverage and it didn't get issued by the policy uh, system. So that is going to make us better at what we're good at, which is making sure that the insured is covered for the exposures that they really have. They don't have to understand the policy, but they have to be able to, you know, express to the agent what they believe their risks to be. And the agent needs to be able to interrogate that sufficiently that they get the right type of coverage. And it will protect the agents against ENO claims. It will protect the customers against claims that are denied because coverages that they wanted or should have had weren't included. And this is the promise of the future. The promise of the future is that we will put information in the hands of our customers in a way that's usable. The insurance agent app, the mobile app is perfect for the customers and the ideal solution for uh, digital engagement for all agencies. I don't care what your level of automation is. The Aureus you know, product, Donna for customer experience, that is empowering agents to do a better job every day of meeting the needs of their customers. The I've got so many that I'm working with. Tarmic has exited already. Um, they're they're now part of the applied uh, systems world. But I have a really exciting new product for commercial automobile. It's uh, an AI driven, you know, video analytics that looks at both the driver and at the road and alerts the driver to dangers if in fact the driver's not paying attention, you know, or alerts the driver that they're drowsy or they're distracted, even if there are no dangers, out the windshield. And it's and it's in the cab as an assistant to that driver. What will lower commercial automobile premiums? Safer drivers. And this is the big change that's happening right now, James, is more than half the technology that I see is risk-mitigating technology. The insurance industry hasn't done a good job of figuring out how to monetize risk mitigating technology. They're real good at anything that makes it easy to do risk transfer, but making the customer safer is a hell of a lot stickier than selling them a policy. If you make them safer and you put technology in their hands, whether it's in their home, in their car, in their business, and it helps you measure How risky that business is and where the exposures are, and you communicate that to your customers, which can all be done via technology. There's not a lot of people involved in this process. And you're making sure that the insurance companies are getting the best possible risks. And it's reinforcing because it changes people's behavior. You want to change behavior, measure it, okay? Start measuring it and giving people feedback in the cab of their truck or their car, in their home or in their business, and you're going to see their behavior change. They will become safer. The social good gets reinforced. It's not a big deal to figure out how to do this from a risk management perspective. Larger brokers do it. Smaller brokers need to get smart about this. Agents need to be smart about it and start saying, I can be the expert on risk. I can be the one that helps you understand how to get that Nest thermostat doing what you want it to do? How to get that Nest, the Ring doorbell doing what you want it to do? How can we use this technology to do a better job of protecting you? That's and, the exciting stuff that I want to work on.
1: It is, and I find it so engaging and at the same time ironic and paradoxical because when you communicate that to the insured, to the decision maker, And I've used these exact words so many times in a discovery call or at the point of sale or whatever. You know, my goal is to make sure that you have less need for the product that I am selling you and that through my good advice, the product that I am selling you will become less important to your company because the the claims that you do have become more infrequent and when they do occur, they're less severe. So both frequency and severity go down which means the insurance gets less expensive because the carriers can make their desired profit while charging less premium. Everybody wins when mitigation strategies are deployed into the marketplace. Yeah. But it's the most paradoxical thing. Most agents have a hard time wrapping their head around it. It's like, wait a second, if, if the insured has better loss controls, that means that, well, they're going to have fewer claims and less severe claims, which means the premiums go down and I make less money. Why mm-hmm. would I want to make less money? It's like, you're, you're missing the point, <laughs> insurance agent. Oh, man.
2: Well, there is a profitability component of this, right? And yep. I, I can tell you the eight insurance agencies are not any different than the rest of us. We usually live right up to our paycheck, okay? So the commissions that agents earn throughout the year, they all get spent. But the yep. money that drops to the bottom line is the profit-sharing check. And that yep. goes up. Even if the premiums go down, it goes up if the loss experience is positive.
1: So, yeah. You're absolutely right. And I I want to be respectful of your time and mine. So I'm going to get to my last question here, which is, it's kind of a multi-part question. So it's not exactly one question, but hit the little whoosh button there. (laughs) In the the last five years, there's really, if if I think about innovation in the last five years, it it really comes back to what is now known as as chat GPT is a good example yeah, that's just the flashy, sexy thing that's on the on the news right now. We we can just call that machine learning or AI, whatever you want to just kind of make it more generic. The mm-hmm. second one I think is blockchain and the use of blockchain technology in the insurance industry. And the third one is probably something that a lot of people aren't too familiar with yet: RPA, robotic process automation, where where it's kind of like. A.I. taken to the next level where we're training and instructing these, these, you know, programs, the software and yeah, to these robots, quote unquote, to do certain things inside of our agency, like send a certificate or make an endorsement or whatever. When you look at the landscape, I guess, what are your thoughts on how this is going to happen? Let's let's play futurist for a second and I know this is all hypothetical, so who cares if you're wrong? It's fun to talk about, right? <laughs> right. That's, that's what shop talk is for. And by George, I've got Frank Sentner, so I'm going to ask him what he thinks is about to happen in the industry, because you probably know better than most of us. When you, when you think about those three things, machine learning or AI, chat GPT is kind of the flavor of the month, and then RPA, robotic process automation, and then blockchain. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Opine at your will on <laughs> any of those three subjects. How does this play out in the insurance industry?
2: Well, I mean, I'll start with RPA because it's the oldest technology. RPA has been around since the 80s and it's pretty low tech. Uh, The value to an insurance agent is many of them have systems that are relatively static and meaning they haven't changed in ages. (laughs) And, And so the navigation of those systems is predictable. And there are a lot of activities that agents have to undertake that are very repetitive. And so if the system is predictable and the activities are repetitive and done in quantity, RPA makes perfect sense. It can do a whole bunch of things for you that, you know, overnight that it's like running a second shift. And I've worked with closely with an RPA uh, startup, Quandry, and uh, they're one of my pro bono we, we talk periodically. Quandry is
1: one of yours, huh?
2: Yeah. Well, I don't. We don't. I don't have equity. I'm not on the advisory board. But if you call Jackson or uh, Jameson, they will tell you they know who I am, and we've had a number of conversations. Um, I like it, and and I think uh, they got their start in Canada. Things are a little more homogenous up there. This is more of the wild west down here. We have many, many more options. But they're doing real well, and I believe they have the inside track working with Applied, which is a huge base of users. So they're gonna get a lot of traction and they do a really good job. Their problem is you have to train them. RPA is not like ML, machine learning, in that the, the system itself doesn't learn, okay? It doesn't derive its own understanding from past activities. RPA has to be specifically programmed to do a thing. It will always do that thing very reliably, but it will never do anything different than you program it to do. Machine learning platforms, on the other hand, which I think are probably the most promising for the future in terms of the technologies you mentioned, they have the ability to learn as they go. And so as it discovers new connections, new linkages, it can incorporate them into its own program. I don't like to use uh, except colloquially the term AI. That's not even a real thing. You know, any program is that is capable of learning is a machine learning program. And if it's no matter how much it learns about the domain that it's involved with, it is never going to come up with a new construct in terms of a different application of what it's learned. That's real intelligence. And there's no such thing as an, as an AI platform that's capable of doing that today. and But people use AI and machine learning more or less interchangeably, and that's fine with me. ML has great applications for our future because of all the reasons I previously mentioned. Blockchain is an interesting thing. It was the darling technology for quite some time, and it's been described accurately, I think, as a, a solution in search of a problem for many years and blockchain is only a, a different architecture for data storage than a centralized database right in yep. a centralized yep. database everybody comes into the database they see what they what they're allowed to see they change what they're allowed to change they add what they're allowed to add delete what they're allowed to delete but Those controls are all extended to to users and they're all on a common platform. Uh, There are people who are very uncomfortable with that. If you said to the insurance industry, hey, a good thing to do would be to put all of the data for all the insurance companies into a central repository and then everybody could see everything. okay, that would get absolutely zero traction. No one would subscribe to that. However, if you have an environment in which a lot of different people need to see coverage information, for example. And we'll use proofs of insurance. Proofs of insurance are a perfect application for distributed ledger technology, DLT, which is actually the preferred name for blockchain. Just two names for the same thing. But distributed ledger technology is more descriptive and explains that I basically have different nodes on a ring, okay? The ring is made of, internet connections. And those nodes belong to different entities. And when I post something to my ledger on my node, I stipulate who has access to this. And copies of that ledger entry go to the ledgers of the people who are on this common ring, this common shared circuit of data. And so I can stipulate that there are these five people who need access to this technology? They can read that technology. If they're authorized, they can write to that node. So I could do a request to bind coverage, right? That could go to the the, the, the people involved, notification say to the insured, notification to the the carrier who's gonna, you know, authorize the binding of coverage. Let's say I'm a broker, I don't have an agency contract. And the carrier then says, I approve, okay? Or you could even put an MGA and a carrier or an MGA carrier and a reinsurer. There are use cases for this where everybody along the chain has to give their approval for this to be issued, issued. Yep. And the final one goes to the, the customer. So there's real viable uses for it, but they have not been successful in any great degree. And I think one of the more successful ones in insurance is the, the institutes stood up the risk stream collaborative. And the idea initially was they were gonna do proofs of insurance. They rapidly found that that was a very challenging use case because of the complexity of the data which we already discussed, right? And how much of that data needs to be distributed to how many different nodes on the blockchain. And they sort of stepped back and went to auto ID cards. And they actually got, I think uh, Nationwide actually bought the platform, to use, and they could link up all of the insurance regulators to you know have access to see that there's coverage here. So, and those individual nodes could also make it available to the state police, local police, anybody who needed access for proof of coverage. So, I would have a a little you know thing on my phone with a QR code, and the the uh, cop would shoot the QR code, and it would tell them here's what the coverages are. You're covered. You know, it's in force. And because it's updated by all of the participants in real time, it's it's never out of date. It's not like a form that you print and photocopy or 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 distribute via email to somebody that's out of date. You know? So yep. I'm walking around with a certificate from three years ago and I've managed to change. I have a nice PDF editor, I changed the effective expiration dates. Okay. So I use it for all my uh, projects and I'm a contractor. I'm not saying I know anybody who does that, but I know it's done. So fraud in proofs of insurance is a huge problem. Maybe as much as 30% uh, of, of the gross written premium in certain lines, you know, is potentially fraudulently reported. And so, you know, there there are reasons for doing this. It's challenge is there's an awful lot of people you got to get involved in order to get consensus on building this. The technology is not the problem. In fact, I would say for every technology that our industry employs, getting it deployed successfully has never been a technology problem. Never. It's always a business problem. It's getting the business people to agree what they want to do.
1: And I think that is probably as good a place to stop as any because my next question would lead us off into follow-ups and take another 10 or 20 minutes that I know neither one of us has. So, wow. This, this has been a very satisfying conversation. Frank, you delivered everything I thought you might deliver. I really appreciate your valuable time and insight. And I'm going to figure out who I need to talk to and, and who I need to call to make a 50th anniversary celebration happen um, because I've never been to Hartford, Connecticut, but I sure would like to. There's lots of reasons for me to go there, uh, and, and celebrating Frank Sentner might be one of them.
2: You can call my insurance agent. His name is Chris Paradiso.
1: No he's, kidding.
2: He's, he's better known than I am.
1: <laughs> Chris is a very well-known figure for sure. Of course, yeah, the two of you Frank. would be together. Oh, he's
2: oh. Actually, I was introduced to Chris by one of my startups, by the insurance agent app folks, Matt, Aaron, and Kiki Johnson. And they no said, of course, they assumed we both are in Connecticut. We must know each other. And we didn't. Wow.
1: So it's
2: no, been a great- th-
1: this, this has been a real privilege, Frank. Thank you so much for, for gracing us uh, here on the podcast. And uh, I look forward to meeting you in person someday soon, I hope. And I hope you have a great rest of your day sir. Uh, this has been another episode of the Agency Freedom podcast. You know what? I almost forgot to give you uh, your send off there. Wood is your consulting group, right? Yes. If there is a tech startup or somebody who has ideas in that space and they want to to reach you, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you Frank?
2: LinkedIn. I am my, all my contact information is there just go in Frank Centner, Sentner S E N T N E R And, you know, you have everything you need there.
1: Excellent. Now, and you have an open invitation, folks, to get with uh, the man himself. And uh, there may be something that you can do together. I don't know. Uh, That'd be really cool if I hear about it, you know, months or a year or two from now that some connection was made because of this podcast episode. That would just tickle me pink. So, Frank, that is it for today, my friend. And boys and girls out there in land, make it a great day. We'll talk to you again real soon. Y'all take care. Thanks for
0: listening to the Agency Freedom Podcast. Please subscribe to AFP on your favorite platform to get automatic updates with every new episode and help other people find us. If you like what you hear, please drop us a review and tell the world what you like best. Most importantly, please share AFP with someone you know who is still in captivity. They'll thank you later. Visit our website at agencyfreedom.com to get access to exclusive content and announcements. Join our community on Facebook by typing in Agency Freedom in the search bar. Send your questions, comments, guest recommendations, and favorite grilling recipes to us at podcast at agencyfreedom.com. This is the Agency Freedom Podcast, where we help insurance professionals move from captivity to freedom. Until next time, let's go.
3: Hey agents, listen to this, listen to this. What are we terrible at? Think of it, think of it.